We're in our main message series on the life of Jesus. We're going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in chronological order to discover who Jesus really was for ourselves. What did he really do? What did he really say? What did he really teach that we should believe? We don't want to hear it from someone else. We want to see it in his word for ourselves. And last time we were in this series, we had the chance to observe an interaction between Jesus and the sisters Mary and Martha. And we all received a powerful reminder that the choice to focus on our relationship with Jesus is always the better decision, the best decision. Despite the seemingly endless list of tasks that life demands that we focus on first, Jesus is always the better choice, always. This week, as we begin our 21 days of prayer, we're going to hear Jesus talk with his disciples once again on the subject of prayer. Perhaps you're like me when it comes to prayer. I want to pray more. I know I should pray more, but even after all these years, I can still find myself easily discouraged by not knowing what to say or how to say it, or frustrated by my seemingly spiritual ADD, that the minute I begin to pray, my brain, which has been completely useless for most of the day, springs into action like a fine-tuned machine, thinking of all kinds of things. If you've ever felt that way, then you're going to be encouraged by what Jesus has to say to us through his word this morning. And this is your first fill-in on your outlines. There is big power in little prayers. Let me say that again. There is big power in little prayers. Jesus' life and his ministry in particular was marked by prayer. Today we're going to be in Luke's gospel, and I just want to walk you through a few verses from Luke that describe how prayer was a part of the everyday life of Jesus. I'll read these verses out. You can follow with me along in your Bibles or just listen. Either is fine. Firstly, in Luke 4.42, after a day of performing miracles, healing the sick, casting demons out of people, we don't read that Jesus said, I've earned this and sat down to watch Sports Center. Instead, we read, now when it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place. Now, anytime you read that, Jesus only goes to a deserted place for one reason, and it's to pray, to be alone with his heavenly Father. I would suggest to you that it's not only to get away from distractions, but most likely because he's praying out loud as he talks with his Father, something which is pretty difficult to do when there's people around. In Luke 5.16, just before Jesus heals a paralytic and wisely handles a confrontation with the Pharisees, we discover what prepared him to do those things. It says, so he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. It wasn't a once a year retreat thing. It was part of Jesus' regular routine. In addition to praying every day, he would get away from everything and everyone to just have some time with the Father. In Luke 6, 12, before performing more miraculous signs and giving some of his greatest teachings ever, guess what Jesus is doing the night before? Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. In Luke 9, 18, just after the feeding of the 5,000, which is astonishing, this is a massive win. How many of us, when we have huge success, when things work out, when something's been up in the air and there's a breakthrough, how many of us, when things are going well, say, oh man, that went fantastically, I need to go pray? Probably none of us. I don't think that way. But we read of Jesus, and it happened as he was alone praying 
that his disciples joined him. That's what he does right after feeding the 5,000. He gets alone with his father. And then later on in that same chapter in verse 28, we read, Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. That's the event known as the transfiguration where Jesus begins to look more and more the way he does in heaven in full view of his disciples. He becomes glorified for a few moments. When your physical appearance literally changes because of your prayer life, you've got something going on. I'd settle for a subtle glow, but Jesus is just radiant at this moment as a result of his connection to the Father through his prayer life. In every situation, in response to every situation, good, bad, when he's high, when he's low, Jesus is praying. And his disciples noticed, and they've begun to put the pieces together. They can be a little slow, but by this point, more than two years into the ministry of Jesus, they've begun to realize that his power, his anointing, his intimate connection with the Father, his incredible teaching, it all flows out of his prayer life. So make a note of this. The disciples' observation and conclusion was that Jesus' power came from his prayer life. His power came from his prayer life. Which is why we read this as we jump into our text at the beginning of Luke 11. Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, when he stopped praying, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, and then underline, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. Jesus has been praying alone, as is his custom, and when he rejoins his disciples, one of them speaks for the group and says, we know that your prayer life is the secret to your ministry. Teach us to pray the way that you pray. They never will ask Jesus to teach them how to raise the dead. They'll never ask Jesus how to preach a better sermon, even though Jesus was the greatest preacher who ever lived. They'll never ask Jesus how to cast out demons or how to master all the theological intricacies of the faith, but they will ask Jesus to teach them how to pray. It's the only instruction that the Bible records the disciples specifically requesting. The John that they're referring to is, of course, John the Baptist, who was also apparently known as a man of prayer, who taught his disciples how to pray and taught them that prayer was essential to the life of anyone who's gonna be a follower of Jesus. The disciples are thinking back to John's ministry, which we still talk about to this day, even though John's ministry only lasted about six months. They're thinking back to that, and they recall that prayer also drove John's ministry. Prayer was also what John taught his disciples to do, and they're going, John had a powerful ministry. Jesus has a powerful ministry. That's the secret sauce. It's prayer. That's the key to everything. And so they asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. And it's so easy for us to forget that Jesus was fully human. Have you ever thought this? Well, well, yeah, it's amazing that Jesus does miracles. Yeah, it's great that he walks on water, but he's God. So, of course, he can do that stuff. It's as impressive as Superman flying. It's sort of what he does. But we forget that when Jesus came to the earth, he emptied himself of all of that Godness, He became a man fully. He had the same relationship to God. He was the son of God, but he was a man. 
emptied all the way to being a man. So everything he does, he does by not his power, but the power of the Holy Spirit in him, which he gains by living his life in surrender to the Father. He gets his power the same way we get our power from the Lord. He just managed to live his whole life without sin getting in the way, without doubt getting in the way, without schedule and life getting in the way. But he was fully human, and that's amazing to me. And the disciples look at Jesus, and they realize, man, we can live lives empowered by God as well if we could just pray the way Jesus prays. If John the Baptist prayed because he needed God's power in his life, the same John who the Bible says was filled with the Holy Spirit in utero before he was even born, and if Jesus, the sinless Son of God, prayed because he needed the Father's power in his life, most of us can probably agree that we should be praying too because God knows that I need his power in my life too, and I'm nowhere near Jesus' level. So make a note of this. If John the Baptist and Jesus needed to pray in order to have God's power in their lives, we can trust that we do as well. Let's move on to verse two. So Jesus answers them and says, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Most of you will recognize this as what's known as the Lord's Prayer. If you come from a Catholic background, you know it as the Our Father. The term the Lord's Prayer is really a bit of a misnomer. It's really the disciples' prayer. This was a prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples for his disciples to pray. This was not a prayer that Jesus prayed. How do we know? Because Jesus never had to ask the Father for forgiveness. He never sinned. The closest thing to the Lord's Prayer, if you want to look into it this week, is John 17. That's where we hear a prayer from Jesus to the Father. That's the Lord's Prayer. This is much better referred to as the Disciples' Prayer, but we also understand that we're not going to change that Christianity cultural thing at this point, so I'm going to refer to this as the Lord's Prayer for the rest of the message. And this is not the first time Jesus has shared this prayer with his disciples. You may recall the first time he taught this was about two years earlier during the Sermon on the Mount. And if you want to study through a full breakdown of the prayer, what each line really means, we're not going to do that today because we've already studied that together. I put the link on your outline. You can go listen to that this week if you want to study through a breakdown of that. But if you recall that first mention of this prayer, you might notice that this one is a little bit different The words are a little bit different in a few places, and when Jesus teaches this two years later, it's shorter. The lines aren't there that say, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. Why are those lines missing? I think there's two possible reasons. Firstly, by shortening it, by tweaking it just a little bit, Jesus knew, the Holy Spirit knew, the Father knew that that would end up in the Bible, in the canon, in the Word, And that would stop the Lord's Prayer being referred to as something like a magic spell, where you have to say it exactly this way because there's supernatural power in saying it exactly this way. So Jesus says it two years later and changes it just a bit to make it clear there's not something magical about these words coming together in this order. It's the heart behind this prayer that is the point. That's the first possibility. 
But secondly, I would imagine that two years later, the disciples are asking Jesus to teach them to pray from this sort of angle. Hey, hey, we know you talked about this two years ago. Matthew would have written it down by that point, shorthand, so he would have had a note of that even. We know you talked about this two years ago, but we've been walking with you for two years. So now when we ask you to teach us how to pray, we're saying teach us how to pray. Give us the, the meaty stuff, the real deep, heavy stuff, the, the graduate course in prayer. And how does Jesus respond? He gives them the same prayer, only this time he simplifies it and makes it even shorter. In other words, what Jesus says is he's like, guys, what I taught two years ago, that's as deep as it gets. That's as deep as it gets when it comes to prayer. There's no secret other level That's how I want you to pray. That's acceptable. That's good. That's what prayer is. Which is amazing because if I asked the Lord to teach me how to pray, and I said, can you write it down for me? I would expect at least a 100-page book, an impossible standard, something you'd have to strive for for the rest of your life, but that's not what he does. He gives them 65 words the first time he gives them the prayer. It can be comfortably prayed in 30 seconds. And then two years later, he shortens it. And Jesus doesn't add, and then after that, obviously, you move into three hours of intense prayer and worship. But this is a great opening 30 seconds. He doesn't add that. He says this prayer is complete on its own. It stands as a legitimate expression of prayer that's pleasing to the Father, even though it's only 30 seconds long. So please understand me. We love Jesus, and we're not excited about this because we don't want to spend time with him. We're excited about this because despite our spiritual ADD, despite our pathetic ability to focus most of the time, we're able to bless our Father, according to Jesus, through a prayer as short and as simple as this. And if you love Jesus, that's what's exciting to you about this. You're reading it and you're going, I I can do that. I can do that. I don't know if I can wander off into the wilderness on a regular basis to pray, but, but, I, but I can do that. Here's the heart of a father. When my kids come up to me in the day and they just give me a hug for a few seconds and then leave, I never say, really? That's it? You didn't bring any sparkling conversation or anything with you? Those few seconds bless me immensely. And we need to understand this, as staggering as this is, we are the children of God. And we have to remember that because of that, when we approach the Father, we approach him as children approaching a Father who loves us, and we have the ability, because we're his children, to bless him in even just a few seconds. Even if all we can say is, Father, I love you, that's all I wanted to say. I just want to let you know that. That blesses him. He's a father who loves his children, and our love for him blesses him because we are his children. Write this down. Incredibly, we have the ability to bless our heavenly father because he has made us his children. It's such a staggering idea. We have the ability to bless our heavenly father who needs nothing, lacks nothing. We have the ability to bless him because he's made us his children. One of the big questions surrounding the Lord's Prayer is, is it something we're supposed to say word for word? Or is it a pattern? Is it a a template and you can break it down and expand it into each area of your life? 
We've already explained that Jesus most likely changes the structure here two years later because he doesn't want people to go overboard with saying it word for word. He doesn't want people to think it only works when you say it exactly as written. It's like it's a password to get into God's presence or something. However, it's important not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's still incredible value and power in saying the Lord's Prayer word for word. It's a prayer given by Jesus himself to his disciples, so I think we can trust it's legit. Jesus warned against meaningless prayers that are just vain repetition, empty words repeated from memory with no emotion or sincerity. If I say the Lord's Prayer and my heart's a million miles away and my heart isn't sensitive to the Spirit, yes, it's meaningless. But if I concentrate, if I contemplate, if I meditate when I say it, it has a powerful and potent effect on me personally. Doing something repeatedly doesn't mean that it lacks sincerity. I tell my wife that I love her every day and I've never had her respond, that's just vain repetition. Really? Stop it. Because I mean it every time. It all depends on where your heart is as you're praying. Doing something over and over doesn't mean it has to be insincere. It all depends where your heart is. So write this down. Praying the same prayer repeatedly only becomes vain repetition when it is done without sincerity. Praying the same prayer repeatedly only becomes vain repetition when it is done without sincerity. If you're praying for a person to come and know the Lord, you can pray, Lord, lead them to you. Help them to find you. Open their eyes. You can pray the next day, Father, thank you that you're working on that person. Thank you that the Holy Spirit is drawing them to you. You can pray the same thing the next day, the next day, the next day, the next day. And I don't know about you, but so often that's an obstacle to praying for the same thing day after day is we feel like it's somehow not right that we're praying the same prayer we prayed the day before. God is never looking down at you and saying, would you get a thesaurus? Can you just like change the wording a little bit? I've heard this all before. Expand your vocabulary. Would it kill you to use some more colorful language? He never does that. He's just looking at your heart. And if you're praying the same thing word for word every day, but your heart is in it every day, there's power in that. And God hears it. And he responds to it. Despite its brevity, the Lord's Prayer is incredibly complete. It covers all of our needs and all of God's worthiness. There is a place for passionate, extended prayer and intercession, but I think we need an adjustment when it comes to how we view prayer in our daily lives. Many of us end up being so intimidated by the idea of praying every day that we just do nothing instead. And most of us understand, ironically, that memorizing Scripture is powerful. Most of us wish we had more of the Bible memorized, but we generally fail to speak out the one part of Scripture that probably almost all of us have memorized, which is the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer can refocus you at any point during the day in just 30 seconds. It's a huge, huge blessing. Let's get real practical here. If you're struggling to pray, just struggling to pray anything. You just can't get started. I want to challenge you this week. Listen to that study on Matthew 6 that I put on your outline and begin to memorize the Lord's prayer. You can do it in just a couple of days. You can do it in one day. It's very easy to memorize. God will help you do it. And begin to pray it regularly on a daily basis. Even if you've never memorized anything other than email addresses and phone numbers, you can do this. It's short 
And it will give you a plan. It'll give you a go-to prayer when you're overwhelmed with anxiety or fear or doubts or insecurities. It'll give you new words and a new way to say, I love you, Lord. Do that this week. Start this afternoon when you go home. Type it out. Print it out. Put it somewhere that you're going to see it. Pray it every morning. Pray it every evening. And when you just have that anxiety or just that desire to get close to the Lord, it's a great way to start to have something to go to when the words don't seem to flow. So what about the Lord's Prayer as a pattern? Certainly this prayer can also be an example or a model that we can study and learn from. It can teach us how to pray and what to pray for. And we can take each line and expand it and apply it to our personal lives with more detail. For example, the first couple of lines teach us that it's powerful to begin our prayers by acknowledging who God is. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's a good principle, right? Begin your prayers by remembering who it is you're praying to. That's a good thing. But it's not the only way to pray. And it can be dangerous when we look at things in the Bible that were designed to be helpful and encouraging and we turn them into commands instead. So suddenly instead of it can be helpful to start your prayers by remembering who you're praying to, we can end up with if you want the Lord to hear you, you need to start by remembering who he is. It's a subtle difference, but you've taken something that was intended to be a blessing, and now you've turned it into a burden, a requirement. Many of you will be familiar with Psalm 104, which reads, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. And many of you have heard it taught, this is how you enter God's presence. If you want to have fellowship and closeness with the Lord, you need to approach him with praise and gratitude. That's helpful advice, but it's not a command. Because when Jesus was walking on the water across the Sea of Galilee, and a storm kicks up, and the disciples look across, and they see him walking on the water, and they're terrified. And Peter says, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come out to you, and I'll come. Jesus says, come on out, Peter. Peter comes out, walks on the water, looks around him, sees the storm, is overwhelmed by fear and doubt, begins to sink. What does Peter do? He cries out, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. And as we all know, Jesus responds by saying, how about a little gratitude first, Peter? How about a few words of praise before you start asking for my help? Haven't you read Psalm 100 verse 4? But that's not what happened. Jesus reached out his hand and he pulled Peter to safety. Despite Peter's flagrant disregard, for the protocol established in Psalm 100 verse 4 and the opening lines of the Lord's Prayer. Here's what you need to know. This prayer is intended to be a help and a blessing. Whether prayed word for word or used as a template, it's not the only acceptable way to pray. It's there to help us when we struggle to pray. It's there to encourage us by reminding us how simple prayer can be. It's there to show all of us that we can pray in a way that blesses our Heavenly Father, whoever we are. Make a note of this. Jesus gave his disciples this prayer as a helpful blessing, not a burdensome command. He gave it to them as a helpful blessing, not a burdensome command. And one more note on this. If you were raised in a Catholic church, if you come from a Catholic background, then as we said earlier, you'll know this prayer as the Our Father. And one of the things that the Catholic church will do is if you go to confession, they may assign you 
the Our Father as an act of penance. And so you will have to pray the Our Father on your own a specific number of times, 72 times, whatever, as penance for your sins in confession. And I just want to be blunt and say, that's not okay. Because you're taking something that God gave as a blessing, and now you're turning it into a burden. And if you were raised Catholic, then probably every time you hear the Our Father, you have an immediate association with guilt. And I don't believe when you read the scriptures, you'll find that that was ever Jesus' intent. Jesus doesn't say, here's a prayer for you when you inevitably screw up. Say this 24 times. If you screw up really bad, 48. He doesn't do it. He gives it to them as a help. When they ask him, teach us how to pray, they didn't say teach us how to repent or teach us how to observe penance. It was teach us how to pray. This is to connect with the Father as Jesus connected with his Father. So if that's your background, I just want to pray this morning at the end that God would free you from associating this with guilt and that by the power of the Holy Spirit it would be turned into something that is a help for you this morning. Let's continue. In verse 5 we read this. And he, Jesus, said to them, Which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, do not trouble me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. Here's the picture Jesus is painting for his disciples. At this time in history in the Middle East, lower and middle class homes generally consist of one room. One big room. And about a third of the floor is elevated about 18 inches. And in the middle of that elevated part would be a fire pit. At night, the family, mom, dad, and the kids would all sleep on that elevated part around the fire pit. And the rest of the floor space would go to their animals, sheep and things like that. So when the family's all tucked in for the night, it's a cozy and it's a crowded situation. After being asleep for a couple of hours, a man hears a knock on the door. I've got a buddy who's just stopped by. I've got nothing to give him to eat. Help me out, bro. Help me out. The guy in the house doesn't want to take his blankets off, tiptoe over the kids and weave his way through the animals. If he lights a lantern or steps on an animal, it's going to wake up the whole household, all of the animals. So he says, leave me alone. I'm sleeping. We're all sleeping. But eventually the friend just keeps knocking. Come on, come on, help me out. Help me out. Some of you got relatives like this. Friend keeps knocking on the door and he wears down the friend in the house by just not going away. He keeps knocking, he keeps asking and eventually the friend in the house says, all right, I'll get you something if you'll just go away. That's the picture Jesus paints for his disciples. Then he says this, verse nine, so, or in light of this, I say to you, Ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Now you've probably heard this taught before. And if you've heard it taught the way that I heard it taught as a child and as a teenager, then you've heard this. The point that Jesus is making is that when it comes to prayer, we need to keep knocking, we need to keep asking, and if we are persistent like the man in the story, God will respond and answer our prayers. But there's some really, really big problems with interpreting what Jesus has just said that way. Some really big problems. 
When interpreting the things we read in the Bible, one of the best rules, the most important rules to follow is to read something, then go and see what does the rest of the Bible say? And if your interpretation contradicts everything else in the Bible, you're probably interpreting it wrong. If it lines up with the rest of Scripture, you're probably interpreting it right. That's an oversimplified explanation, but the point stands. For me personally, I believe that the issue of God's character is incredibly important. When you read the Bible, even in the Old Testament, you get to know the character of God. And so I believe it's incredibly important when we interpret the Bible to ask, is the implied character of God consistent with the character of God in the rest of the Bible? So if you read one part of the Bible and it makes the character of God out to be a mean, vengeful, unforgiving God, You've got a problem because that's not the character of God displayed in the rest of the Bible. Most Christians understand this, but most Christians make the mistake, instead of comparing God's character to the rest of the Bible, they compare God's character to who they would like God to be. And they say, well, that interpretation doesn't line up with who I would like God to be, so I'll change my interpretation so that it harmonizes with who I would like God to be. That's a dangerous trap to watch out for. In the case of the story we're studying right now, the problems arise when we begin to compare God's attributes and character, as revealed in the rest of the Bible, to the view that God is supposedly like the man in the house in the story. Here's an example. The man in the house is sleeping and doesn't want to be disturbed. The Psalms tell us that God never sleeps. He never slumbers. The man in the house is cranky and bothered by the presence of his friend outside his house. Is the God of the Bible bothered when we go to him? Is the God of the Bible cranky when we come to him with our needs? In 1 Peter it says we're to cast all our cares upon him because he cares for us. So if you have the view that Jesus and God are the man in the house, then basically what you believe God is a cranky old man who doesn't want to be disturbed. And when you show up to pray, he's like, what? What? Go away. But the supposed encouraging part is, if you just annoy him long enough, if you wear him down, if you drive him crazy, maybe, maybe, you can get what you want out of him because he'll be so desperate to get rid of you. I have a problem with that interpretation of our Heavenly Father. It doesn't line up with the rest of the Bible. When you put all the pieces together, it becomes very clear. Make a note of this. Jesus is not telling the story to make a comparison, but rather a contrast. It's not a comparison, it's a contrast. He's not saying your Heavenly Father is like that. He's saying, so consider how different to that your heavenly Father is. When you knock, your heavenly Father opens the door. When you ask, your heavenly Father responds. He doesn't tell you to go away. You may have also heard that the original language literally says this. Keep asking and it will be given to you. Keep seeking and you will find. Keep knocking and it will be opened to you. For everyone who keeps asking receives, and he who keeps seeking finds, and to him who keeps knocking, it will be opened. And it's true, but many of us don't like the idea because our first thought is, why is God being so cruel? 
Why is he playing hard to get? Does he want us to be like puppies standing on our hind legs, learning how to beg for a treat? But again, if you know the character of our heavenly father, you know there's no way that can be true. That's not who he is. If you have kids, then you've probably experienced the shifting desires of your children, especially when it comes to Christmas gifts. I don't know how your kids are, but it's the norm for the thing that our kids want more than anything to dramatically change from month to month leading up to Christmas, then week to week, and then even day to day. So do you know how we handle that as their parents? We look at their lives. We look at their passions. We look at their interests. We look at how they're doing in their faith journey. We weigh all of that, and as good parents, we determine what the best gifts are for our children. Because we have experience and we know things they don't know. We see things they don't see. And we say, yeah, if you get that, you're going to be done with it in a month. If you get that, you're going to break it in three days and forget about it. But if we did this instead, what if we gave you an experience instead of a thing? You're going to remember the experience way longer. It'll be a better gift. The Lord does the same thing with us. And he asks us to persist in prayer because whether we realize it or not, having to persist in prayer helps us figure out what it is that we really want what it is that we really care about. Over time, those things become clear through the persistence of our prayers. We become focused, and the Lord answers and gives us the things that we really want. So make a note of this. Persisting in prayer helps us figure out what we really want. What is it that we really want? How many of you know that if the Lord gave you everything you asked for right away, your life would be a disaster? It'd be a disaster. Not only that, but our relationship with him would begin to revolve exclusively around us asking him for stuff. That's all it would be, a transactionary relationship. When we persist in prayer, we find ourselves going to God over and over again, spending time with him, thinking about him, and you know what? Some amazing things begin to happen. We begin to realize, wait a minute, my anxiety and fear goes down dramatically after I've spent time with God. Even though I'm going to him asking for stuff, a side effect of that seems to be my anxiety and my fear goes down. We seem to have a bit more peace. We find our love for him growing. And as we persist in prayer, we begin to discover or remember that what we crave more than anything is more of him. And perhaps we were praying for something that we thought would bring us peace. And through having to go back to God again and again, we begin to realize, wait a minute, it's actually God that gives me peace peace. I don't need that thing to give me peace. I need God because even that thing can be taken from me, but God is always here with me. That helps us sort through our priorities as well. We discover that the peace, the joy, the rest, the hope, and the life that we're searching for is really found in him. And sometimes we realize that what we've been asking for is really just a cheap substitute for God. He's what we really want. I love what Jesus said in John 15. He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask whatever you desire and it'll be done for you. The idea is as we draw closer to God, as our friendship with him deepens, our relationship with him grows, 
we're going to begin to want the same things for our lives that he wants for our lives. And when that alignment happens, God doesn't have to sort through all our misguided desires anymore. He's able to just say yes. Yes, you now want the same things for your life that I want for you. Because you've been spending time with the Lord, you're beginning to get his heart and his mind, and so your appetites literally change. You begin to want the things that are actually good for you. Make a note of this. Persisting in prayer helps us figure out what we really want and draws us closer to God. It draws us closer to God. He's not making you beg. He's blessing you. He's drawing you closer to him. And he's guiding you toward what is best for you. It all comes down to this. You can trust the character of your heavenly father. You can trust his character. Even when it seems like your prayers aren't being answered, he hears you and he's doing good for you. You can trust his character. Before we move on, let's look at verse 10 again real quick. It says, For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be open. Let's not make it say something it doesn't say. It says everyone who asks receives. Everyone. You'll never leave empty-handed when you choose to pray. It's quite a promise because as you Bible students know, the word everyone in the Greek means Everyone. Everyone. It doesn't say if you've had enough faith, then you'll receive. It doesn't say if you've been really good, if you've been on a righteous roll the last few weeks, then you'll receive. It says everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be opened. Listen to me and I'll explain this. You might not get what you wanted, but you will get what you want. It might not be what I think I want in the moment, but it will prove to be what I really wanted over time. Because there's a desire behind everything we ask for. If I'm praying to the Lord for a Ferrari, it's not because I love pieces of metal, leather, and gasoline. That's not why. There's a desire behind that. I believe people will look at me differently if I have that. I believe it will bring me a level of joy that's missing from my life if I have that. You see, there's desires behind the things that we ask for. We want financial prosperity because we believe it'll bring us peace and security. We want our kids to go to church because we want them to know and love the Lord. We want friends because we want to feel like we belong. The Lord hears every prayer and he goes to work immediately on working to give you what you really want, what you really need. The Father sees what we don't see, and he knows what we don't know yet. Jesus is going to keep addressing the fact that many people view his Father like the man in the house, cranky and reluctant to help unless he's bothered and worn down into doing something for us. So why is Jesus working so hard as he's teaching on prayer to help his disciples understand the character of the Father? Why is this theme coming up over and over again? It's because they have an Old Testament view of God. And in the Old Testament, God is only referred to by the term father a handful of times. And it's the word father used the same way that you would call the founder of a country the father of that country. It's not an intimate, close relationship as between children and a paternal father. 
It's not that sort of relationship. It's much more formal and distant than that. So the idea that we can relate to our Heavenly Father like sons and daughters to a loving Father was completely foreign to even the disciples, to everyone at that time. So Jesus is trying to give them a new paradigm, and he's trying to change 2,000 years of theological perspective on how we relate to our Heavenly Father. They were used to having to go through a priest because their Heavenly Father had been so unapproachable. Jesus is saying some radical things, and he's going to make the point that our Heavenly Father is better and more wonderful than any human father. He's going to point out, so if a human father is this good, how good do you think your Heavenly Father is? And if these are the good things an earthly father does, what do you think your heavenly father wants to do for you? What do you think he will do for you? Verse 11, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, so in other words, if you who have a sin nature, Know how to give good gifts to your children. If you know the difference between a good gift and a bad gift, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Do you get the contrast that Jesus is making? He's pointing out that God knows what blesses us. God is not one of these weird relatives who always gave you something on your birthday that you never really wanted. Jesus is saying, listen, your heavenly father is not someone who gives you things that he thinks are good gifts, but you're like, what is that? He's saying your heavenly father knows what a good gift is. If you as a sinful human know what a good gift is, trust me, your righteous father knows what a good gift is. He knows how to bless you. Jesus wants us to understand the character of our heavenly father so that we'll understand this. If I want something, if I'm praying for something and I don't get that something, I must conclude that that something is not what is best for me, at least in that moment in time, because I know that my heavenly father loves me. I know that he knows what's best for me. He wants what's best for me, and he's only going to do what's best for me, so clearly If he didn't answer the prayer, it's not what is best for me, at least at this moment in time. He's not going to give me a serpent, even if I think it's a fish. He's not going to send me a curse, even if I think it would be a blessing. Jesus is saying, you can trust your heavenly Father. You can trust him. Write this down. When we truly know the Father's character, we will truly trust his responses to our prayers. When we truly trust and know the Father's character, we will truly trust his responses to our prayers. If you think that the fact that God doesn't seem to be answering your prayer means that he doesn't love you, you need to get to know the Father's character. You need to revisit that because when you trust his character, you'll trust that however he responds to your prayers is what is best for you. But I've been praying for a spouse and God hasn't sent me one. The Bible says marriage is a good thing. What's the problem? Maybe the Lord is saying, if I sent you a spouse right now, you'd be divorced two years later because you've got some hurt and some pain from your past that you've never dealt with. You've buried it. And I want to heal you from that first so that if I send you the right person, you don't sabotage the good thing that I want to give you. 
I want to bring healing to you before you go into that. I want what's best for you. My understanding of how God works changed radically when someone explained to me that God's goal is not for my life to be easy. That's not what good means. It doesn't mean easy. God's goal is that I would become more like his son Jesus. That is what is best for me. Because after I die or I'm raptured and taken to heaven, I'm going to be given tasks and assignments of real importance. God's going to trust us with some incredible things. And my life here is ultimately preparation for that. So far more important than my life being easy is me learning how to be gracious, me learning how to be patient, me learning how to be kind and forgiving. Those things are so much more important than my life being easy. Because learning those things here and now in a period of time that is this compared to eternity, the size of this room, learning those things now is going to benefit me forever, forever. I'm praying for more money because I don't see how I'm going to make it. How is that a bad thing? When's God going to get on that? Maybe the Lord is saying, hey, let's be honest. You're only at peace when the numbers add up in your financial life. I want to teach you how to be at peace even when the numbers don't. And that's not something, guess what, that I can teach you when the numbers all add up. I have to take you to the place where they don't. And we're going to work on this here and now, and I'm going to take care of you. And then when you've grown to the place where you find your peace in me instead of your money, then we can take care of the money thing. I'm going to take care of you in the meantime, but we got to work on this because we're not supposed to be at peace because everything in your life adds up. You're supposed to be at peace because God is in your life and he's with you. And unfortunately, most of the most important lessons we need to learn in life cannot be learned in the place of comfort and ease. We have to be stretched. The best lessons happen outside of the boat. You can ask Peter. Not in the boat. The disciples in the boat, maybe they learned something. They didn't learn anything close to what Peter learned. He walked on water, and he learned that even when he began to fall, Jesus wasn't going to let him slip through his fingers. When we truly know the Father's character, we will trust his responses to our prayers. Psalm 84 says this, and I love it. It's on your outlines. For the Lord is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Perhaps you're thinking, well, it's great that God is working on this big plan to fulfill the desires he's placed inside of me. But what am I supposed to do in the meantime? Be miserable? Of course not. Listen to verse 13 again. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give, and then underline the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. We're messed up. We got issues. And sometimes it's a long and winding road to get us to the good things that God has for us in a state where we won't immediately screw them up. But while he's working on all that good stuff, he promises this. He says, there is something I'll give you right now. Guaranteed. All you got to do is ask. A fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. And maybe you go, oh, great. 
That's just as good as money. What does the Holy Spirit mean? What does it mean? Well, the Bible tells us in Galatians that what the Holy Spirit produces in our life is love. How many of you would like to feel full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? If you're full of those things, I don't know that you're wanting for much. God says, I'll give you all that right now through my Holy Spirit. All you got to do is ask. And that's a guarantee for anyone who asks. And you know what? The Holy Spirit is enough to keep you full of joy and peace and faith and hope while the Lord navigates you through all these twists and turns toward the good things he has for you. Make a note of this. A fresh filling of the Holy Spirit is always available to God's children. A fresh filling of the Holy Spirit is always available to God's children. In the book of Romans, Paul the Apostle writes to the believers in Rome because there's a problem. They've fallen back into worshiping a religious and distant God. And he needs to remind them that they're children of a God who loves them and desires to relate to them as a loving father. So Paul writes this, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That word Abba is an Aramaic word, and in every culture there's a word for Father that's incredibly simple. It's usually just two syllables because it needs to be learned by children at a very, very young age. Some places it's Dada. In our culture it's generally Daddy. In Aramaic it was Abba, Abba. It's the way a child would call to a father. Hands up, Abba, Abba, Abba. And that's the word that Paul uses to tell them, hey, this is the relationship that the Holy Spirit in you wants you to have with your father. It'd just be daddy. Abba, Abba, that's who he is. Not sir, not mister, father, daddy, Abba. That's how you're supposed to relate to your God. If we don't view our heavenly father that way, all the things we've talked about today are gonna be almost impossible for us. If you don't really understand that your heavenly father loves you and he wants what's best for you, then you're not going to rest in his timing and his plan for your life. You're going to hijack the plan. You're going to say, I've got a better plan. It's faster, bigger, stronger, better. And you're not going to rest and trust that he's doing something better than you can do because he knows what you don't know and he sees what you don't see. You'll never trust him until you get to know him. That's why the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. You're never going to trust him until you get to know him. You have a heavenly father who loves you and wants the best for you. Not only that, but he's able to bring the things that are best for you into your life. If you'll let him, if you'll trust him to do it. And when you trust the character of God, something neat begins to happen. As you persist in prayer over the things that matter most to you, instead of thinking that every time you pray, you are reminding God of what you need, when you begin to trust his character, you'll realize that prayer is more about reminding yourself about who he is. And instead of praying, hey, Father, just in case you forgot, kind of in a tight place financially, You'll find yourself praying, Father, thank you. You love me, and you've got this. 
and you know what is best for me. Thank you, I can trust you. And prayers become more about reminding yourself of who he is because you realize he doesn't need reminding to love you. He doesn't need reminding to remember you. He doesn't need reminding of what your needs are. He knows them before you even ask for them. But man, do we need to be reminded of who he is and how he loves us because we forget like that. We forget so easily. There's big power in little prayers. And if your prayer life has stalled or never gotten started, then I really want to challenge you. Start praying the Lord's Prayer this week. Pray it as it comes to mind. Pray it when you're anxious. Pray it when you're thankful. Take those 30 seconds. Do it with sincerity and devotion. Listen, it's not the length of your prayers. It's the strength of your prayers. It's not the length of your prayers. It's the strength of your prayers. And a short, heartfelt prayer is more powerful than a long, unfocused, emotionless, wandering prayer where you just throw out every spiritual phrase you can think of. And know this. This is a huge key someone once told me. They said, listen, if your prayers move you, they'll move God. Sometimes we wonder why God isn't moved by our prayers, but we're not even moved by our prayers. Pray with your heart. Pray with emotion. Pray with sincerity. It doesn't matter how short it is. If it's one line, you can blurt out. God loves sincerity. He loves it. He craves it with his kids. And finally, I want to remind you, because I forget this too, that a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit is always available to every believer this morning, to every single one of us who belong to Jesus. I know that you would love to be full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Who wouldn't want those things? If we don't have them, it's because we're not asking for them. So let's ask this morning. Father, thank you that you don't withhold any good thing from us. And you've promised to give the Holy Spirit to us if we will just ask. So Lord, before we look to anything else, for any sort of love or hope or peace or faith, Lord, we look to you and we pray in the name of Jesus that you would give us a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit this morning, that we would be empowered by you, God, that we would be full of you. Your word says a perfect love casts out all fear, and so we pray that the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives would push out fear, would push out doubt, would push out anxiety, would lift depression, Lord God. And would stir faith and joy and peace and hope and love. Fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit this morning. In the name of Jesus we pray and we receive it in the name of Jesus. And we thank you in the name of Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. 
If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.